a million times maybe. I don't know how many times. A lot of times. Very often I share about the Thursday morning pastor's prayer group. A group of guys that I pray with uh, here in this, in this building actually every week. And, and it's a group that I've been a part of now for many, many years. And just what a tremendous blessing it is to me. And, and, and it really, that group to me is, is such uh, an illustration of God's heart. Because we are, we are different. We come from different churches, different bodies. We have different styles of worship. We have, some of us have slightly different theologies, and yet we come together. We love one another. We pray for one another. And we work side by side to see God's kingdom advanced here in, in this community. And I love that. I love that. And you guys have had a chance in the past to meet a couple of my friends from that group. And I want to introduce you to another one tonight. David Greenidge is here from Tiger Covenant Church, which is just kind of across the street, really, not very far away. David is a, is a very, very dear brother and just full of the joy of the Lord. I just I can't tell you how much he blesses me every time I see him. And, uh, you know, I did something that I, I never typically do when I invite a guest speaker to come. Most of the time, I just leave it wide open. I say, you come and share on whatever you want to share on. But I actually invited David to, to share tonight with us on a specific topic. Uh, and this, this actually came out of a conversation we had in our group about two months ago, maybe, or a month and a half ago. And uh, we, we had a, a, a very, very interesting conversation one morning um, about race and, and race relationships and race relationships in the church. And one of the things that I found out in the middle of that conversation was sometimes we think we're okay. We think we got it all together. I don't, I'm, I'm not racist, am I? Maybe I am. Maybe there are some attitudes and some opinions in my heart that uh, I'm not aware of or even there. So I asked David specifically if he would come and share on that tonight. So would you welcome David Greenidge from Tiger Covenant? Don't cut me off yet. And if you would uh, just raise your hands and pray for him. I want to pray for him real quick. Jesus, I thank you so much for David and his heart for you. Uh, I ask you would anoint him and bless him to speak your word of truth tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So Amen. All right. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Portland Vineyard, for the invitation to come here to be with you. And, yes, Glenn is truly a friend of mine. Uh, the guys that meet on Thursday morning are a bunch of guys uh, and women uh, who love Jesus and who have committed to serving each other, and committed to praying for each other. So out of that relationship, like he said, which has been many years, uh, we've just, in, just enjoyed each other's company, so much so that when we see each other at Safeway or Fred Meyer, uh, we run up to our wives, and I go, honey, honey, I said, Trish, that's Glenn, or that's Jeff. And, and so we love having fellowship. And then a couple times we were able to go to our little retreat center, and we spent a half a day just praying for each other. And we did what you did this morning. We sang songs and prayed, and then after that, we uh, were driving down the highway, and it was just nice. We were kind of on Highway 99 near Yamhill, and it was just nice. I think it was an Italian restaurant. And so one of our pastor friends said, I tell you what, I'm treating for lunch. And I said, I love this group. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we just have a good time and uh, enjoying each other's company. But, yes, about a month, uh, two months ago, we were talking about the subject of race. And um, it was interesting that uh, at the time that, Glenn asked me, I pastor Tiger Covenant Church, and I've been there seven years. And when I first came to Tiger, uh, there was only one other black family uh, there beside myself, and mostly being a white church, it was kind of strange for me at first, because I was getting to know them, they were getting to know me, but before I became their pastor, they actually had to vote me in. Church uh, polity, the way the church operates, is that 
whenever a new pastor is being brought in, the whole church has to vote on it. So the Sunday I candidated uh, and did my sermon, then they dismissed all the guests and visitors, and then they had a Q&A period. And so they asked me a variety of questions, and most of the questions they asked me uh, ended up being, uh, I guess in their mind, satisfactory, because they asked me to be their pastor. But one of the questions they asked me was, uh, what's your issue on the subject of race and multiculturalism? And I said, well, uh, simply put, I want to see this church become more multicultural over time. And then one person was bold enough uh, to ask me, well, do you intend for this church to become a black church? And I said, no, I intend for this church to be a church where Christ is exalted, and if it attracts people of all races, then I'm cool with that, and I'd like to see that. So over time, we've gone down this road of race, and our church probably now is about 30 or 40% multicultural. It's still predominantly white. But we just have a good time because our focus, once again, is exalting Christ. Can you say amen to that? And I think that any good church, no matter where you are on the planet, if you exalt Christ, good things will happen. Well, it was interesting when Glenn, Pastor Glenn, asked me to speak to you on the subject of race. We have a men's Bible study that meets at the church at 6 a.m. Believe it or not, I can get some fools to follow me at 6 a.m. in the morning. They do. And we have a group of about six or seven people, and I say that jokingly, forgive me. Um, to come on out. And so one of my white brothers made a comment, and it was so, so interesting because it was one of those moments where, you know how the group is just, and we've been meeting for a year now, and we're going through the book of Proverbs, and we're starting to get close. I mean, we're, we're getting close with, open, you know, walls and barriers are coming down, and we're starting to love each other. And this brother just blurted out something. And it was one of those moments after he blurted out, it was like you could hear a pin drop. And this is what he said. We, we had just been sharing some things, and it kind of came out of left field. And it was obviously something that was on his heart. It really had nothing to do with what we were talking about. And this is what he said. He says, when blacks came over to this country on ships during the, during the time of slavery, he said, um, how come they haven't gotten over that? I mean, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And then I said, and, and we were having this conversation, and, and, and there were, let's see, there were three, the three black guys that were there, and there were about five white guys. And so, and all of a sudden, we just kind of stopped and just looked at them. And I said, you know, I think we need to talk about the subject of race. And I said, I tell you what, I said, I'm going to do a Bible study on race, and I'm going to answer your question in about three weeks from now. So I prepared this little teaching on race, and then I came back three weeks later, and we exhausted the subject. Well, just about that time, Pastor Steve comes up to me out of the blue and says, will you do a teaching on race? And I said, wow, look at the Holy Spirit go at this subject. So this is what I started out with them on, and I'll share with you, and I'll give you my testimony. I was born and raised in New York City, and my mom and dad, uh, my dad was a pastor in New York, uh, but before he was a pastor, he had another job. And in my neighborhood in New York, as in many large city situations still to this day. It was a predominantly black neighborhood. I mean, I didn't see any, any uh, white people in my neighborhood. The only white people I saw in my neighborhood was the police officers and the, ele and the elementary school teachers in my school. Now, um, I was born in a neighborhood of New York which is called the South Bronx. Now, to be exact, the address was 1271 7th Avenue. The reason why this was important is that the South Bronx at that time was way worse back in the day when Harlem used to be talked about in all the old movies and, 
You know, Harlem was just a bad place. Well, South Bronx, South Bronx had it beat by far. We have more crime in that neighborhood, more murder, more prostitution, uh, more drugs. I mean, it's one of those movies where you see on TV, you know, sometimes you're going down the freeway and you make a mistake as you're going through a big city and you get off the wrong exit. It was that kind of area of town. Don't get off in the South Bronx. Well, my mom um, um, wasn't very rich, and so when I was born, she had a midwife, and the midwife assisted my, uh, my mom in giving birth to me. So I was actually born at that address that I gave you. There were eight kids in our family, and the eight kids were born in two sets of four. Now, the first four had it very, very good economically. They had it very good economically. The second four, which I was a part of the second four, things were a little bit more tough. And the reason why overall the first four had it better economically was my, my dad was the first black machinist that was hired in Harlem, and so he basically was a tool maker, and he had pretty and made pretty good wages. Well, right in the middle of his career, he decided that he was going to adhere to a call that he received from God to become a pastor. And so the family moved from Harlem to the South Bronx, uh, where I was born at, and his salary went from a very nice, comfortable salary to a $35 salary a week for a family of 10 people. Um, I was born, and money was a little tight, and then there were two more kids, and money got a little bit more tighter. And one of the things that I noticed about my block was, like I mentioned to you earlier, that all the people were black, but I really, never really noticed that until one, one day something pivotal happened, and it's a signature time in my childhood. One of my friends, his older brother, was taking classes at night school across town, and it was in a neighborhood that was far away from the South Bronx. Uh, New York is divided up of five boroughs, so it was like over in Queens. So he had to take the train there, and on his way back, he was walking through a white neighborhood, and because he, and he normally doesn't do that, but for whatever reason, he decided to do that. So as he was walking through this neighborhood, uh, a bunch of white guys saw him, and they mugged him and beat him to death. Well, he was a friend, um, he was a younger brother. Um, I mean, his younger brother was a friend of mine, and when the story kind of broke and he told us and the story hit the whole block, we were just all in shock. Why would somebody kill somebody just for the color of their skin? And so slowly but surely, here I'm a young kid in the, in the, in the Bronx, built, you know, born in that situation, even though my dad was a pastor, hatred started to build in my heart uh, toward white people, specifically toward uh, more toward police officers, because police officers also had a role as we were being raised where they would stop young blacks, profile them, and stop them for no reason while they were uh, driving their cars. And if you drove out of the city, if you drove to Philly or anything, you were being profiled. And many times even driving to, uh, on the way to Philadelphia, which was a common route between New York and, uh, and Pennsylvania, a lot of people always went to Philadelphia for parties or they had friends in Philly. It was only an hour and a half drive. But to get to Philadelphia from New York, you'd have to go on these lonely rural roads. And the police officers in those lonely towns, when they saw blacks in the cars and they speed down the freeway, they would pull them over. And the, tr and the routine would be for it to be a, uh, what they felt was a legal shakedown. Because what they would do is they would stop them. They would say they were speeding. And then they would say, here's the fine for the ticket. And then you had to pay them cash. They didn't want to check. And if you didn't pay them cash, they would put you in jail, because most of these trips were on weekends. And if you didn't have the cash, they put you in jail, and you'd have to stay in jail till Monday before you could get out. So many of the blacks just had a routine that you better bring an extra 40 or $50, so if you got stopped by the police, you could pay off. I don't know if something dropped. You could pay off, pay off the police. 
and uh, not be bothered by the police. So these kind of stories start to build hatred in my heart for white people in particular. So all of a sudden, now here I am hearing messages in my church, and my dad is preaching the gospel, and I'm hanging out with my kids on the block. My mom and dad had very strong control over me, even though I was in this community seeing all these things that were going on. My mom and dad protected me and pulled me out of that, very protective, very come in by dark, wouldn't let me wander the streets, wouldn't let me hang out with the wrong kids. But I'm being affected by this stuff, and I'm starting to see this go on. But one Sunday morning, the sermon was preached by a guest pastor, and I heard the gospel message that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Well, I knew I had some sin. There was hatred in my heart, like I told you, for white people because these things that would happen. Uh, I had an anger and a cussing problem. And I thought I was cool. See, I had four brothers. And in my school, nobody messed with me because I was known as one of the Greenwich brothers. And don't mess with David because you've got to deal with his four brothers. So, you know, I just had an anger problem, a cussing problem. I thought I was a cool, cool guy. Uh, my dad was a pastor, uh, but I was far from the kingdom of God. And so at age 12, I heard the gospel message that Christ died on the cross for my sin, that I was a sinner and I needed Christ. And something just shot through my heart, penetrated my soul. The light of Christ hit me, and I said, you know, I need to give my heart to the Lord, and I gave my heart. Well, I had an immediate problem because I knew that I had all these feelings, and slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit started working on my heart and my cussing and my hatred, and it started to slowly go away. And I could sense the presence of God moving in my heart, and I knew I was changed. I knew I had to deal with my feelings about how I felt about white people. Now, I'll just fast forward and tell you that years later, when I was 15, this was 12, a few years later, my dad moved from New York to Seattle, and of all things, he was pastoring an all-black church in uh, New York, and he was called to pastor a predominantly white church in Seattle. And so for me, that was culture shock. He had to go from this all-black church to all-white church, but that's another story I'll tell you about that. But the main thing I want to point out to you is that God penetrated my heart through the word of God, through the preaching of his word, and his word is what changed my heart. If you have your Bibles or if you have your, your Bibles on an electronic format, turn with me to Proverbs 1, chapter 1. And this scripture really touched my heart because I thought to myself, you know what? It's only the word of God that can change us. And so I've entitled this little talk, uh, Race Righteousness. And I believe there can be only righteousness and the subject of race, racial righteousness can only be dealt with properly by the word of God and the answer of the cross. And so justice comes directly from the word of God. In Proverbs chapter 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, and here's the key phrase, for doing what is right, just, and fair. And in order for you and I to really have a handle on who Christ is and who God is, we have to have a sense of justice that affects us to where we want to do right for our brother where we want to do right to our system, we really care about them because we have a God who's a right, righteous God, a just God, then we too need to embrace the qualities that he's about. So God is a God of justice, and he stands for justice. He saw the pain of that family, of my friend's uh, brother's family, who he was killed just because of the race. He cares about people who are taken advantage of economically throughout the world, where you have these warlords. 
that are hoarding food. And so to this day, we still see in countries throughout the world that there's, there's a famine and, and they're taking advantage of that. And we don't really have a resource issue of not enough food, but we have an issue of the heart where people are hoarding the resources that God has blessed us with. So God is a God of justice. He cares about it, and he wants somebody to stand up for him. He wants nobody to be treated unfairly because of the color of their skin. He made us all, and he thinks we are all beautiful. We are all his, and he loves us. He loves us so much that all of you know the story. He sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We celebrated communion this morning. He loves us so much that he's commanded us to love each other. He's commanded us to love each other. We need to take the subject of racial righteousness very seriously. This is not just a cool subject to talk about because we have a crisis of heart and we hit a wall and sometimes we realize, you know, I'm not connected to people of all cultures. No, this is more than that. This is a God agenda item that we need to surrender to Jesus Christ. This is not a politically correct topic. This is a God priority. And you and I as Christians need to lead the way in the area of racial righteousness. Say amen. We shouldn't be in the back seat of the discussion. We should be in the forefront of talks on this subject. And as a matter of fact, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask us to be interactive uh, on this subject, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and I want you to talk back at me as some of the things I've suggested to you this morning. God wants, to have, God wants us to have and engage in genuine actions of kindness that will get the attention of the world so that they will truly know that we are Christians by our love. God is not pleased with anyone that does not walk in his righteousness. He paid a great price for this to occur, and he's leading the way. A person that stirs up dissension, which is strong discord and disagreement, does not walk in righteousness. Turn with me to Proverbs 10, 12. Am I doing something wrong, Steve? I heard a bump. <laughs> I broke his rule. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. It states that hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. This is the key for racial harmony, love. Love comes from God, and wisdom comes from God. When love and wisdom is in the heart of a person, racial righteousness will prevail. The root of racism is hatred for another person. When we ask Christ to save us and he takes residence in our hearts, we all in this room receive his love. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everything about the Christian experience is love. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Many people still have the root of racism in their hearts. Many of them, and some of them, it's because I don't believe they're truly saved. I would like us not to say anymore that you and I as Christians have racism in our heart. I've been thinking about this for a while because I used to say that myself. Oh, I still have some racism I need to deal with. People say, oh, yeah, I still have some racism. But the world wants everyone to say we still have racism in our lives and we're working on it. No, I believe that if we're born again of the Spirit of God, we are a new creation and we walk in love. Say amen. We don't walk in sin. We don't walk in racism. 
Now, you may be able to say because of our American culture in America that the American culture has had effect in your life and that the issue of race, you're learning new things about yourself, but don't say that you're a racist anymore because I used to be in that trap and I used to say that. I want us to instead walk toward Christ. Now, the fact that I'm talking about the subject of race sometimes is troubling to some people today, and I want you to just take a deep breath and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and let his love flood your soul. Because I'm going to ask you some penetrating questions in a minute, and it might touch a couple of nerves, but just say, Holy Spirit, you take control. And I believe that this subject needs to be talked about in the church. It needs to be talked about in our small groups, so much so that when we get on the job and we get in our family situations where people don't know God and we have a cousin or uncle who's not too cool on race and they say something that's inappropriate and we don't know how to respond to them, I'm going to give you some ammunition through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can say when someone makes that inappropriate comment, not not just to get on them, make them mad, get angry at them, you know, get a fiery discussion, but I want you to give light to the person that has ignorance so that they can have information on how they can deal in the subject of racial righteousness in an appropriate manner. I want us to talk about it in such a way that we as a church become light to a dark world that is trying to solve the problem of race. Uh, The world is trying to solve the problem of race through education, not through Christ. The race problem is a great opportunity for the church to be a witness for Christ. But make sure, first of all, that all of us deal with our own hearts before we try to start addressing this problem. Before we try to start to talk to a Latino person or African-American person or a Filipino person, a person of another race, and we're trying to break down those walls and we're trying to get closer to that person, make sure you have spent time in your own heart and asking Jesus to reveal to you any issues in your life and to rid you of those experiences where you have bad views of other people. Maybe you picked it up on a television program. Maybe you picked it up in a movie that you went to. Maybe you picked it up from some relatives that are in your family. You've heard different things being said. And if you do this, God will shine his light in your hearts. When we have Christ reigning as Lord in our lives, this will bring unity. Everybody say unity. Unity is another wonderful virtue that God will give us that will heal racial disharmony. We are one in Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Galatians three twenty-seven. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. And then also look at verse 26. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. We are sons of God through faith in Jesus. While we should not negate our racial identities, we must remember the reason for us being brothers and sisters in the Lord is because of Christ, not our racial backgrounds. What does this mean? This means we can still have celebrations about culture. I belong to the Covenant denomination, and the Covenant denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, was started by a bunch of Swedes who in the 1800s came from Sweden and moved to the United States. And that first group, they had this big discussion, a big argument, and one of their main argumentative points was, were we going to talk in Swedish or were we going to talk in in English. And they argued over that. And they decided to talk in English. Well, the Swedes are known for their different foods that they make. 
and different cultural norms that they had, and they were trying to decide, are we going to let our cultural norms predominate our new life in America, or are we going to adapt to some of the new things that are going on in America and try to be relevant in this new situation? One of the first things they decided to do was to open up a mission in China and to have exchange with folks from China and learn about the Chinese culture. The second thing they did, they moved, migrated to the area of Chicago, was they opened up a home for people who were wayward and people who were homeless, and they decided to let their faith be known in actions of compassion and justice. Let the church say amen. So if we gravitate more toward talking Swedish or more toward talking whatever our culture norm is, rather than saying, let Christ be exalted, we error. And we still can celebrate our culture. We still can celebrate uh, black culture, white culture, Latino culture, all the cultures of the world. But here's how we do it. We let the things of God have precedence and build unity in the church of God. Our racial uh, backgrounds don't have to be denied and devalued, but it's just that Christ is exalted. So sometimes we get together as a church right now over at Tiger Covenant Church, and we just had a potluck dinner, and we said, it's International Dinner Day. Bring your favorite cultural dinner. And so people brought their uh, special dinner. Some folks brought ribs. Some folks brought meatballs. Some folks brought wonderful salads. Uh, we have a Filipino sister. She brought some lupe. Is it lupe, Trish? Lupe. And so it was good. We had all this different food, and it was wonderful. Because we normally just have chicken, potatoes, and salad, and a slice of cake. But that day, we had all these different foods, and it was wonderful. And it's boring just to keep eating chicken and potatoes and a slice of cake. But that Sunday, we had about 15 different types of foods. And how many of you go to the restaurant when you go out? Do you always eat at the Chinese restaurant? Or do you always eat at Davison's? Or do you always eat at one restaurant? Yeah, you have a restaurant you like more than others. But sure enough, throughout the course of about six months, I bet you try different restaurants, don't you? Because you like a little variety. And God made the cultures of the world because he knew we would like some variety. So the fact that he made our different cultures was something that he made. But we then have to appreciate those cultures in the context of what he has done through his son in Christ. So Christ needs to have a preeminence. Our differences don't separate us, but they point us to the almighty that made us. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So the fact that we have our various cultures, the fact that we have our various differences, and the fact that people are thinking different ways about different subjects, those things come from God because God created us with our differences. Our diversity, our racial differences are the workmanship of God. It's been over time in Bible times in recent American history that we have erected walls of division between the races for a variety of reasons. And Christ came to tear down those walls and to give us all peace. There can be no peace among the races without Christ. Let's turn to Ephesians 2.10. And this is the last scripture I'm going to turn to. And then I want to kind of open it up for some discussion and I have a few questions for you. Let's look at Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in, his one, in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
he came and preached peace. Everybody say peace. To you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And then it goes on to say this, which is so beautiful. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I would suppose, I would purport to you that because of the scripture, that what you have right here is a place where God lives. And what we have at Tiger Covenant Church and what we have at the local church down the corner, the Presbyterian Church, whatever the church is where people are lifting up the name of Jesus, it's a place where God to indwell and where God to live and where God is exalted, so much so that the walls of race are broken down and new walls of righteousness are erected, so much so that we can talk about any subject. So back to my brother who made the comment about why can't blacks get over the issue of slavery that occurred. And I said, I don't know. I don't have an answer. From your perspective, they're not getting over it. But what we need to do as a community of faith is to see any hurt in the community. And so if there's some blacks out there that still go back to the days of slavery, and some are still living there, even though that happened hundreds of years ago, some African Americans in certain uh, cities throughout the United States are still breathing and living and seeing the slave ships that were brought and have that hatred in our hearts. And think about the issues in the Middle East. They're still breathing and eating the violence that happened to them hundreds and even thousands of years ago, and there's still hatred between the Jews and the Arabs, and people won't let go. And so the answer to this issue is Christ and the fact that he has died on the cross, and no matter how sinful we have become as a race of people through time, that we can receive God's forgiveness and give forgiveness, and it's only through that supernatural presence of the invasion of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that can regenerate us, and it's the answer for the race problem. We can talk to we're blue in the face. When I was in middle school, they made me move from my all-black neighborhood and sent me to a white neighborhood, and we were all, t- excuse me, sent me to a white school in a white neighborhood, and we were all in the same classroom, but I still remember the fact that some white people had killed my friend's brother, and so I still had that hatred in my heart. And I didn't want to be close to some of the white kids in, in, in the class. But it wasn't until I asked Christ to save my soul that I realized, and forgive me of my sin, that I realized that this guy sitting next to me had nothing to do with what happened over there. And I can befriend him, and I did. And I started to get and establish good friendships with some of the white students in the class. It wasn't because of education. It was because of Christ who changed my heart. So I would purport that the subject of evangelism is so relevant for the subject of race because as we give people the love of Jesus and as they become more on fire with the message of Christ and as they get saved, it will be an opportunity for us to talk about the subject of race in a way that we weren't able to address it before. And so now I want to get practical 
and I want to ask you a couple questions. I'm done with the subject of race in terms of me talking about it, and I want you to interact with me. So I have a few questions. And I started to think about some of the questions I could propose to you and ask you, and I said, I could go easy, or I could be risky and go into some dangerous waters. So I want to be risky and go into dangerous waters, because I think you guys are mature and can handle it. So I actually want to get political for a moment, and I want you to talk back at me. Let's have a two-way discussion. Let's all talk now. God has been teaching us this morning. I believe Christian whites have become overly influenced by the world systems and political parties, and I believe that Christian blacks, and I'm dealing primarily with blacks and whites only because that's the starting point, but it applies to really all the races. I believe that Christian blacks have become overly influenced by the world systems and political parties. Let me give you an example. Why do many whites say that blacks need to get a job and stop being overly dependent on the government? What's wrong with this line of thinking? Talk to me. I'm sorry? There's poverty and homelessness in all races. Anybody else? It's stereotyping. Good. Anybody else? It's a flawed system. Yep. 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 Anybody else? But have you ever been in groups of discussion when that question has been posed and people just get on the bandwagon and they go, yeah. We have an overly dependent system. We need to get those people off the government rolls. Those folks need to get a job. And the people start hyping that subject up. And you guys just took a deep breath because I prefaced it with giving you some scripture, and I prefaced it with giving you the subject and wearing a body of Christ. And so you were able to give me some decent answers to that question. I'll ask this question another way. Why do many blacks say that whites don't care about, why, and this is generalization now, why do many blacks say that whites don't care about the masses of poor people that are suffering in the black community with high unemployment at rates that are double whites, and that whites don't care? And why do also blacks say that the system protects the rich? What's wrong with this statement? Talk to me. <laughs> what did you say? He said it's true. But what's wrong with this line of thinking? Because blacks say that whites don't care about the masses of people. Trish, you talk to me. You're black. <laughs> Why do blacks say that? <laughs> It'll, it, she'll speak in a few minutes. Trish is the kind of person that once she gets started, she won't stop speaking. So she'll... she'll but the reason why blacks say that is that whites don't care about the masses of poor people because they look at the political party and because of some in certain political party, namely the Republicans, they make these assumptions and these are overgeneralizations that don't apply to all whites. Okay, I'm asking another tough question. Why are most whites, excuse me, let me correct that. Why are some whites seem to, in the Christian world, yeah, this, is, this I think is accurate. Why does it seem that some whites in the Christian world seem to, seem to uh, lean more toward the Republican Party? And why does it seem that some blacks in large numbers, now this is not just in the Christian world, why is it that most blacks are Democratic? Why is that? Talk to me on that one. Right? 
Yes. But, but why, does it, why is the political party set up? Well, I'll deal with the Democratic Party first. Why is the Democratic Party, why have they captured the majority of the black vote? Why do most blacks give their votes to Democrats? Why do you think so? Yes. Yeah, values and what's important for one group of people versus what's important for another group of people. Let me ask the question this way. What practices do Republicans and Democrats have that you do not disagree that you do not agree with? What practices do Republicans and Democrats have that you don't that you don't agree with? Say that again? Power mongering, okay, and that's usually on the Republican side. What else? Corruptness, that's probably on both sides. Yeah, go ahead. Race baiting, yeah. Class warfare, yeah. Taxes. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that each party does. No matter what your political persuasion, be you Republican, Democratic, Independent, or you don't even vote and don't care. There's a lot of things that the political movements that you are closely, most closely aligned with, there are a lot of things that they do that you should not feel comfortable about. I mean, as Christians, we're called for a whole other set of values that supersedes our party. But we as the church have allowed the political parties, both parties, to suck us in and keep our mouths silent on the issues that are not righteous. And what I would suggest we do in the church is to raise a new standard of righteousness where we bring the parties to us and make sure they hear us clearly before we give our heart and soul to the party. And we need to remember that those parties have flaws and be willing to disagree. And so you may vote Republican or you may vote Democratic, but quickly say, not everything that my party plank stands for do I agree with. Because some of both parties and some of the independent party have planks in their party that's ungodly and unrighteous. And I think in some of the elections in the past, if you study history, many of the Christian vote, there were large numbers of black Christians that voted for George Bush. It was a huge segment, and it was because of some of the moral issues, and those issues are coming up again. Gay marriage, abortion. And so we need to ask ourselves, is it just one issue that I'm going to vote candidate on? That's only something you can answer. I don't have an answer for you. But what I'm trying to say is don't allow your party to define who you are and to compromise your Christian voice. It's okay for you to have a card that says you're a Republican. It's okay for you to have a card that you're a Democrat. But don't give your party everything. Stand up to what areas of your party that are unrighteous and tell them you don't agree with that. And as a political force, make the parties come to you to stand for some of the values. So we should care about what each of our parties have to deal with the subject of poor. It shouldn't be just a handout. It should be policies that truly help to build people up and give them dignity. It shouldn't be a system that's created, and this is a criticism on the Democratic Party, which overly enables people to become overly dependent on the, polit on the government as opposed to giving them worth and value and dignity to where they can have a job. And so Democrats have done that. They've sucked people in and they've allowed people to have certain benefits because of their party planks. And, and because of those benefits, they give their allegiance to that party. Don't allow the party to buy you. Don't allow the party to compromise your vote. Don't allow the party 
to take you away from the mandate of exalting Christ. Back to the subject of race. Um, I believe we need to talk about race, and I believe we need to be open about the subject of race. I believe we need to feel comfortable about the subject of race and ask any question that we want to ask about the subject of race and say, well, what does God's word have to say about it? How can I deal with someone of another culture? How can I have an open and honest discussion so that I allow more people of other cultures to be in my circle of friends? Jesus gave us the best example. He had three guys that he hung out with, and he had a whole bunch of women that he hung out with, Mary, Martha. He cared about people of other races, he cared about the Samaritan woman. And you and I have to get to the place where we have friendships with people of other races, and it's demonstrated on who sits at our dinner table, who we take out to the restaurant. I'm proud to call Glenn, Pastor Glenn, my friend. And I will stand up for him in any context, any place, any time, because he and I have broken bread together. He's my friend, and I love him. We've talked about the subject of race. We've talked about the subject of the poor. We've talked about the subject of power. And we have decided that we are going to be united in Christ and that we will be brothers and friends forever. And as every Christian makes those connections with people of races and say, that brother, that sister is my friend. And even though they're a person of a different race and they have different views on different things, we are able to walk through our differences and exalt Christ. We become the body of Christ. Okay, any questions at all on the subject of race or any comments on anything I've said? Yeah, yeah. And race jokes kind of have come and gone in our American culture. At one time, you know, they were real prevalent. I think of the Don Rickles days. He used to make racial jokes all the time. People would laugh. And then it became uncool to say racial jokes. Now they seem to come back up again. And so how do we handle racial jokes? And we need to say that's not funny. Just look somebody straight in the face and say that's not funny. And stand up for what you believe and say why you believe it. And people will stop telling them. It's that simple. If you don't laugh, if you don't get involved, or if you're quiet, the jokes will continue. How about at work when someone sends you an email? You know, at work you're not supposed to do it because you can get in trouble. But if you have a secretive way of getting emails through or texts through where people can't see it. And people are just laughing. But when you get to the place where you say, that's not funny. Trish, did you have any thoughts that finally came back up? Are you cool? Okay, then when we get home, she's going to have an earful for me. But now she wants to be quiet. Any questions or comments by anybody else? The subject of race. How do we deal about it? So I want to I I end with a question. How many friends do you have where they are significant relations with a person of another race, another culture? How many people can you say, that's my friend? And I know I'm not a casual association. I'm talking about that you can say is a real friend. And until you can answer that question with at least one or two people, that you can say, I have a real close connection. And you know what? If you're trying to establish that and get it, this is how you do it. Don't just go up to somebody and superimpose yourself on someone. <laughs> Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. You just can't run up to someone and say, be my friend, because you're a person of another race. It won't work. <laughs> won't work. But if you just start being kind to someone and you find someone that has the same things, you like to fish, they like to fish. You like to golf, they like to golf. Find something that you both like to do. And from that, ask the Holy Spirit. But you have to be intentional about it. Because you might say, well, Pastor David, there's not a lot of blacks that live in Tiger. 
For that matter, there's not a lot of blacks that live in Oregon. That's true. Only 3% of the population is black in the state. We don't have the luxury that other states have with this more multiculturalism by virtue of just the numbers. So you have to be intentional. Jesus intentionally told his close buddies, go to town and get some food. Get out of my face. I don't want to see you guys anymore. And he intentionally went by the well and had his encounter with that woman. And I would suggest that he was friends with that woman for the rest of his life. So you and I have to intentionally go out of our way to find somebody and then ask the Holy Spirit how to build and cultivate that relationship. And if you're intentional and if you're serious about being kingdom-minded, God will bring the person into your path. And you know what? You might just like it. Pastor Glenn.